You know, size is so relative. As at some point in the sitting, I opened my eyes and I thought, gee, where is everybody? Not very many people here tonight. And then I thought, if I were teaching a retreat that had 20 people in it, I would think I was in heaven. It was the perfect size retreat. So you are all the perfect size retreat for tonight. And I'm happy that you're here. And you can see I have a new toy to play with, um, which is a stand for notes, finally. So that's a piece of goodness. And we'll see if this thing is going to record kind of behind me. I'm, I'm not so sure. But So we've been talking in here about a series of factors in the mind uh, from a list that's called, has a wonderful title, of Liberative Dependent Origination. So these are really factors which are on the way to liberation. And so we've talked some about suffering and then out of that as a supporting condition, Mm -hmm. conviction or trust arising. Mm -hmm. And then out of that, joy and then, I mean, delight and then joy and then rapture. And tonight we're going to talk some about tranquility. And then out of that comes happiness, and which creates the conditions for concentration. And, and then seeing things as they are. And then a couple of other steps after that that are the kind of the completion of the liberation. So these are all factors which support clear seeing and in the end, freedom. The operative word in the list is liberative. Um, And although it's a linear list and it's helpful to look at it as a sequence, I also truly invite you not to grade yourself. Like, uh, I'm only, maybe I've got a little bit of delight, but that's about it. You know, I'm way down at the bottom of the list. It must mean I'm a C student or a D student or something. Because it's, it's also, one, like many of the lists, it operates as a kind of a hologram, and they're all part of each other. However, in the sense that, that there's some foundation that each step creates, that's, that's the, one of the important things, and in that way it is linear. That, and what's really, really clear, if you think of what I just read to you, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Seeing things as they are is the ninth step. So that makes it really clear that seeing things as they are has a lot of other things that have to happen first. And we talked a lot last week about how a number of those are really you know, delight and joy and rapture. You know, so this is good. It doesn't say anything about, you know, hard work and gritting your teeth and, and all of that. So as I thought about tranquility today, I thought about all the times that I can remember my mother saying, sit still and pay attention. And if she didn't say sit still and pay attention, my teachers did. And certainly I did as a mother. 
And even today, you know, I take my dogs out for a walk and I say, sit, you know, pay attention, you know, be still, stop wiggling around so much. And so there's a way in which we all know that endless wiggling does not support attention and seeing clearly. And even when we give the instructions for practice, we say, sit as still as you can. Now we don't, we're not in this lineage really strict about absolutely still, nobody comes around with a stick or anything like that. But there's that sense that if you're always moving the body around and twitching and scratching and adjusting and all of that, that doesn't support the stillness of the mind. And then I thought even of that phrase that's fairly common that gets said in a number of ways where we say, let's stop and think for a minute. Let's stop and think for a minute so we can get clear, right? But you have to stop. So the pieces we've been looking at about delight and joy and rapture, they can be really exhilarating. You know, they can bring up a lot of energy in the body. And rapture as a meditative quality is is sometimes quite literally waves of energy in the body and jumping around on the cushion and that kind of thing. And even, oddly enough, given that we call it rapture, it can even be a fairly unpleasant experience. It's not always so nice to have it. And so it's not a particularly tranquil state in and of itself. So when mindfulness is strong and when awareness is clear, sometimes it's the awareness is described as mirror-like, mirror-like awareness. And that was interesting as I thought about this talk for tonight because I thought of mirrors, just even the mirror in your bathroom, right? The mirror in your bathroom, if um, it's been cleaned and polished and it's still it reflects you pretty well but if you start moving the mirror were there an earthquake for example it wouldn't do such a good job of reflecting what is and you know I thought about been reading some about the mirrors in telescopes and how much work goes to get them exactly polished to the highest degree and and they can't move. And then I was even remembering that when I was up on Mauna Kea last winter, which is the mountain on the big island of Hawaii where they have all the telescopes. You've undoubtedly seen pictures and some of you have probably been there. And they want you to go down before, you know, as soon as the sun sets. They want you to get in your car and leave because the heat from the cars and the engines interferes with the clarity of the scopes. Just that much movement of the air. Isn't it interesting? And it's actually one of the problems with earthbound scopes is that there's just the slightest movement of air in the atmosphere and then they don't see so clearly. And so the mind is like that. You know, it takes a lot of stillness to see absolutely clearly and certainly considerable stillness to see even somewhat clearly. So again today, as I was pondering, you know, talks tend, 
when I prepare them, they tend to cook through the day. And um, so there was a difficult email this morning, you know, one of those emails that come in. And before I knew what I was doing, I was writing away. (laughs) And then I thought, no, I hit the discard button. I was good this time. But, you know, the email doesn't go away, right? At some point, I do have to respond to it. And it was just interesting, since I was thinking about tranquility for a talk, just to see how the, that agitation in the mind, you know, kept kind of, kind of making the mind unsettled, and it was hard to concentrate, and it was hard to settle into doing anything else, and it was hard to see clearly to think about preparing a talk, really. So... The question is, you know, if tranquility is a really helpful factor in waking up, having some state of calm and settledness and stillness and quiet, you know, how can we support it? Now, we've already talked about some of the steps in the sequence, you know, and we know that there's you know, the, the working with suffering in a transformative way and faith, delight, joy, and rapture that lets us know that this isn't first. And so you don't usually just get to go, okay, now I'm going to be tranquil. And then you are. You know, if you try to do that, you know, good luck. It doesn't usually work that well. But here's some things that I thought about as I was considering it. One is that the body knows a lot more about tranquility than the mind does. So one of the places to go always is into the body. And that there is a way in which as we practice with sitting, with sitting still, some of us, you know, some of you do yoga practices, probably everybody's familiar with the kind of settledness of the body that can come when we rest after exercise, you know, that, that we can actually notice the stillness of the body. You can actually pay attention to it, and learn from it. Like, okay, hmm, the body knows how to do this. Maybe if I pay attention to the body, let the mind kind of be a little more in the background, um, we can find out um, or we can enter into that stillness. There's a way in which that focusing on that allows then the mind to quiet as well. So that leads me to the second thing, which is, of course, that place of stopping every day in order to be still, however it is that you do that. So that, for many of us, is some period of daily practice where we sit in whatever posture you sit, and you sit, again, relatively quietly. And it can be very helpful since we know that delight and joy are part of the conditions for tranquility, to bring them into your awareness. Oh, this is nice. We were talking on Tuesday, the Tuesday said, I didn't think to do it tonight. Um, Just on, here you are, you've got 45 minutes when you come in here, and you don't have anything to do. You know, that is fabulous. That's fabulous. How many other 45-minute periods in your day-to-day did you have when you thought, I can just sit there, and unless you took a nap, maybe you might have then. But other than that, 
when you can just sit there and not do anything. That's a really, really wonderful thing to have. So to bring in that delight and that joy because that actually helps the mind and the body to settle and to notice any level of stillness that's there, you know, to really be aware of it and to protect it, you know, to really protect any time of tranquility that you have so that you're you're not answering your phone and you're not dealing with the computer and if it beeps and says you've got mail, you know, you just preferably it won't beep. But, you know, that, that all of that, all of the noise, the radios, the TVs, is set aside for a period of time. Because if the mind is endlessly disturbed, we can't see clearly. Just like if the mirror is endlessly disturbed, you can't see clearly. So that led me to the remembering that the description of the hindrances to practice, aversion, desire, restlessness, sloth and torpor, so sleepiness and doubt, are all described in the classic teachings as clouding the mind. Aversion is bubbles in the mind like hot pools, and desire is dye, and sloth and torpor is like slime and algae in a pool, and um, restlessness is like the wind blowing over the water, and then doubt is when it gets muddy. And so the, the pool, this clear pool of awareness, gets clouded with the hindrances. And again, it's not tranquil and you can't see clearly. So, you know, this mind of mine today, stewing around about how was I going to respond to this email, had lots of bubbles in it and it was very restless. And it was not holding still and clear. Ajahn Chah, in that wonderful teaching of his, says... Your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange things come and go, strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So then also, it becomes really clear that, you know, part of the agitation in my mind today was really because there was a strong inclination towards unwise speech, right? I really wanted to say something to this. And that keeping the precepts is actually an enormous support for a quiet and tranquil mind. So not harming, not taking things that aren't offered, the wise use of sexuality, so not using your sexuality to harm in any way, not harming with your speech, and not intoxicating body or mind. So, you know, even for those of you who are really new to practice, and maybe you don't have your periods of quiet and stillness really worked into your life yet, but just beginning to keep the precepts, you know, to really live your life in a skillful and ethical way, actually begins to create tranquility in the mind. And um, because a mind that is caught in doing things that are harmful 
is not quiet. It isn't. And if you have any question about that, you can experiment with it. And so then, lastly, and it seemed kind of appropriate given the time of year, um, we sometimes choose particular periods of time to be periods of quiet and simplicity and solitude. So maybe you're going on a retreat this summer. You know, some of some people do that in their summers. So many of us take time in nature, some kind of vacation or time when when we slow down and we move into a really simpler way of being in the rhythms of nature. Because the rhythms of nature, even when they're a little bit on the stormy side, they still seem to be supportive of a tranquil mind. They're not the rhythms of a you know, busy cyber culture. So it's something to think about as, as you move into your summer and you think about, you know, how am I going to support this mind becoming clearer and quieter and able to have insight and able to come to freedom? That actually, you know, that walk on the beach or a few hours spent hiking in the forest is actually part of that, that that places you in a situation that um, that calms the heart and mind, you know. We, or maybe um, you're going to take some time and camp or backpack, and then you really get simple, you know. You take only the things you can carry on your back or pack into your small car, and that's a very different kind of life from what we do every day. It's so easy, you know, it's so easy to be caught with our to-do list and, um, you know, a friend of mine was showing me her relatively new smartphone the other day and was like, ah, and it will even remind me of my appointments, you know. Well, that's great, you know, I'd probably like to be reminded of my appointments too. And... Um, you know, it's, it's like this thing is intruding all the time, reminding us of the next thing to do. And, you know, your phone, your smartphone doesn't call you up and say, it's tranquil time now. You know, it just doesn't do that. It's so busy. And so it's really important for us as part of our practice to begin to notice tranquility when it's there, whether we invite it and whether we begin to know what are the conditions that support it, or whether it's one of those kind of tranquil moments, you know, there you are walking on Westcliff Drive and the sun is setting and the wind is just right and all of a sudden it gets really quiet and still and you go, oh, this is nice. And really notice it. Really pay attention to this tranquility. So here's a poem to end with. It's one of my favorites. It's been read at a gazillion retreats and Dharma talks, but nonetheless, it's from Wendell Berry. And he says, When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things 
who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting for their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. So I think that's enough from me. And I would be happy to have questions or comments or wonderings or if somebody has the perfect technique for finding tranquility in your practice that you'd like to share or whatever. Please. <laughs> you can hypothetically you have um, like a hyperactivity type disorder and when you're moving your mind is clear but when you're still your mind is great. Mm, it's an interesting question. That seems far away. To have it, that kind of stillness of mind. Well, you know, I think For one thing, it it is difficult in the context of everyday life practice. And so for for the mind to become absolutely clear like that is actually the product of years and years and years and years and years of practice. Or something that arises for a spell of time during a retreat, but it's not sustainable. So what I think it's begin, what's interesting to begin to consider for all of us, for one thing, if you know that your body needs a lot of activity in order for everything to get calm, then it's important to do whatever you need to do to arrive at those moments. And, and at the same time, I think it's also important to begin to see what happens when, let's assuming we've managed to discharge some of the extra energy, when I sit still, and can there, if not, if not no hindrances, can there at least be less? You know, pick one or two as a project. Maybe just work with greed and hatred rather than all five of them so that the mind is at least clear of greed and hatred. Those are big ones right there. That's, that's probably 20 years of work, you know. And so it's, it's not an all-at-once kind of process, yeah. You know, you read these great teachers, your mind will become still in any surroundings. It's like, ah, oh, sounds so wonderful. And it's so hard. Yeah. So. Anyone else? Please, Heidi. Um, I was driving the other day and nearly ran a red light just being spacious. Fortunately, my friend who was and so I put a little Be Mindful sign on my dashboard, which has been really quite helpful. And I think that it's helping me be more tranquil driving because I'm saying moment by moment by uh-huh. moment uh-huh. more. Uh, huh. the, the key to tranquility, I think, is being in the now. In the present moment, yeah. And letting yeah. go of the last moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, yes, and, and actually what you're really pointing towards is that all freedom is only in the present moment. You know, freedom is not something that's in the future, and it's not, I mean, there may have been tastes of it in the past, but it's not here now if it's in the past. And so the only place where we can understand and know some deep freedom is in the present moment. And I'll talk about this more as we move into that part of this list, but the, my understanding is that there is a place of complete and total freedom available in every moment. And the art of this practice is actually to find it. It's more a geography than an achievement. And um, it's a very interesting way to begin to look at this. So you can chew on that one a little bit. Even driving. Hmm. Okay, well... um, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.